The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP. Today is June 30th, 2022. I need to give a quick thank you to a group of awesome people. I've asked a good group of friends, both competitors and non-competitors, to listen to this in its infancy and give me some serious constructive feedback so that I don't look like a complete buffoon when I turn this podcast loose. It's easy to give friendly jabs at your buddies, but it's incredibly difficult to give your friend negative feedback about something they've worked on to help improve everything, and I'm incredibly grateful for you guys. You all know who you are. I've shot twice since our last episode, and you'd think I don't have a day job, but I do. In fact, this recording is being done from Anchorage, Alaska on a quick work trip. Last week, I was lucky enough to have the week off from work, so it was a great opportunity to play around with a few items. I had my new upper ready to rock and roll with a 16 power scope. My unusual scope choice was for a few reasons. I wanted to see how well my hold actually looks during sitting and slow prone to isolate some weird movements, and I wanted to be able to do some load testing in the new barrel to make sure my current load works. I have great news. My results were completely inconclusive. Today we'll kick off with a little bit of the results rundown, head back into the load lounge, take a quick trip around the track with the mental machine, and finish off with a somewhat divisive equipment engagement. That part will be fun. Trust me. Well, everything felt a little different this week, and the 16 power scope was likely my culprit on this first match. I was able to squeak out a 194 or 195 on offhand and a fairly good score during sitting, but when it came to pop back to 300 yards, there was a noticeable difference in on-target performance. Because my 300-yard scores have been doing so well this year, and at the chance of sounding just a bit overconfident, I'm going to blame a majority of my struggles on using that 16-power scope and not my actual shooting ability. It's a Weaver T16 from the 90s, and I was really unfamiliar with setting focus or parallax because it's not as obvious as I'd hoped. The markings on the end of the scope were not user-friendly, and I was going with my classic this-will-have-to-do mentality. It was a struggle keeping my crosshairs in focused, and it caused a bit of a distraction. I was seeing high and low shots that were certainly off-call. The same thing showed up during slow-prone phase of the match as well. A ton of off-call shots. Obviously, ammo testing wasn't going to be happening after the match, so I packed it up and headed home. The following match was a 50-round match with good conditions at a different venue. I had reinstalled my second white oak scope that had been sighted in to get baseline zeros prior to the match. Today's load was my match load of Sierra 77s and 22.8 grains of Reloader 15 at the 200 and 300 yard lines, and Burger 80.5s on top of 24 grains of Reloader 15. All 50 rounds were trickled and weighed so I could get a good idea of ammunition performance for the day. Okay, I want to preface something here. I know, I know that relying purely on electronic target systems for load development and velocities is not the best strategy. However, it worked reliably on my previous two loads when I worked them up and I was planning on using the same technique here. While everything felt really good throughout the match, I noticed that it felt like I was chasing my zeros around, which is something I kind of expected from a new barrel with a different company, relatively untested loads, and installing the scope just before the match. What caught me by surprise was the velocity differences being displayed on the electronic targets at the 200-yard line. 
I was seeing differences of two to 300 feet per second, which resulted in an SD of 50 or more. I'm not used to seeing that at this range. Now this range typically shows slightly higher SD values than other ranges I shoot at, and the velocities do tend to be slightly higher, so I factored that into what I was seeing, but it was simply too high. I had a few off-call shots in offhand, which I attributed to myself, and a few in rapid sitting, which I also attributed to my developing position. I can't really say if it was the rifle, me, or the ammo causing some of these off-call shots, but the SD leads me to believe that it wasn't entirely my fault. Just to add to my confusion, the shot marker system was reading an error message that said the bottom right sensor is partially unplugged. I queried the match director who affirmed that shot marker claims the placement and velocities will be accurate even with an inoperative sensor. Needless to say, my mind was in a million places after the first two positions at 200 yards. During the target change to 300 yards, I found that the sensor was, in fact, partially unplugged. So kudos to the shot marker programmer for the accurate error message. I was cautiously hopeful that me plugging the cable in snugly would help what I was seeing on my iPad. After setting up at the 300 yard line, I saw a much better performance. My SD had dropped to 19 and showed much more consistent velocities. While an SD of 19 is slightly higher than I was hoping for, I find it acceptable at this specific range due to my pass matches showing similar results. While the group wasn't necessarily the best during rapid prone, I'll take credit for the rest of it. Now comes the somewhat interesting part. Back at the 600 yard line, I was feeling confident even though some of the rest of the match hadn't gone as well as I had hoped. It was another opportunity to learn some good information regarding on-target groups with the burgers. If you listened to my last episode, you may recall that I was internally struggling to decide whether to seat my burgers off the lands by 10 thousandths or by 30 thousandths. As a quick recap, my last upper was shooting excellently at 600 yards, and I hadn't measured the jump that the burgers were seated to in quite some time. When I checked it for reference on the last episode, I found that I was actually jumping them in my old upper by almost 30 thousandths exactly. This ammo is shooting extremely well, with its best performance holding 0.8 MOA at 600 yards from the sling. My general mentality was to seed everything to 10 thousandths, so for this match they were actually loaded to the 10 thousandths line. I'm thinking that was a mistake and I'm kicking myself a little for not listening to my gut. I think the 30 thou idea would have been much more appropriate. What I've done in the past was seat my first 10 rounds a little longer and the last 10 rounds a little shorter and watch what happens downrange. In a league-style match, I'm afforded the opportunity to play around with things and experiment a little bit without trying this in a higher-level match. I didn't do that in this situation, which wasn't a huge deal, although I wish I really had. I was seeing some elevation deviations and horizontal shifts that were off-call. The wind at this range is known for being a little goofy, but today was the exception and it was estimated between 5 and 7 miles per hour from the 2 o'clock direction. What I did find out was that my rounds downrange had some serious stank on them. I was averaging 1825 feet per second on target, which was nearly 200 feet per second faster than the shooter next to me. I don't think that this is really bad because my previous barrel was shooting the same velocities. What I didn't like was the off-call shots and the velocity variations throughout the string. I was able to salvage the string and walk away with losing only 4 points, but I really wasn't happy about it. On the bright side though, I learned which combination isn't suited for this upper configuration. I'm looking forward to testing these at 30 thousandths off the lands and interpreting those results. We'll take a quick break and hop into the load lounge to talk about an interesting strategy for seating depth testing in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Load Lounge. I want to share an interesting development technique that I read about courtesy of my good friend Sam who often shares unique articles. The article I read was from Precision Rifle Blog written by Carl Zant in coordination with Mark Gordon. And please note, I'm simply hitting the highlights of this article and I probably won't even skim some of the important aspects of it. I hope I don't do it any injustice with my cliff notes here. The article involved finding the best jump for your bullet if indeed you do need to jump it. A lot of shooters will head to the range and figure out which three or four rounds will perform best in groups of bullet jumping. If that wasn't clear as mud, an example would be shooting four shots at half a thousandths, four shots at ten thousandths, maybe four shots at fifteen thousandths. While that technique will certainly yield a result that the shooter can fall in love with, it often falls inside of a zone of intolerability. What I mean by intolerability is that as the throat erodes over time, your jump will increase if you don't adjust your seating die. As a service rifle shooter, this can be pretty cumbersome. Measuring jump before each match sounds like a complete pain. And with that in mind, if you are able to get great results at maybe 15 thousandths jump, but bad results at 20 thousandths, then you can expect that as your season progresses, you're edging on a seating depth that's going to be disastrous later on. Don't fall into that trap. The article further went to explain different techniques to finding great seating depth. This writer was equipped with electronic targets at longer distances than just the 100 yards. I think it was about 5 or 600 yards, if I recall. Off the bench, the shooter would test one shot, just one, of each predetermined seating depth at the target. The string would start somewhere around touching the lands and then incrementally increase the jump by three to five thousandths until it was just at a satisfactory depth that was not going to produce any good results. Of course, this final seating depth would be up to the shooter, but maybe for our purposes, I would say start around five thousandths and then jump at four thousandths until you reach about 45 to 50 thousandths. After the string is completed, the shooter would measure the vertical deviation from shot to shot. What he was looking for was the string of shots that yielded the lowest vertical deviation between them. In essence, he was finding a zone that would give him the least MOA change as he simulated the barrel being eroded throughout the season. Let's say that our tester found that from 5 thousandths to 15 thousandths was showing erratic vertical deviation from shot to shot as the depth was increased. But he found that from 15 thousandths to 28 thousandths, there was only a quarter MOA difference in vertical deviation. Then again, after 28 thousandths, he saw that the vertical deviation started to increase to an unacceptable level. At this point, he's found some great data regarding jump tolerance. He now knows that if he sets his seating depth to 15 thousandths off the lands, that as time goes on and the barrel erodes, he would get minimal vertical deviation as the throat eroded to approximately 28 thousandths. Not a bad system going on here. Now obviously there's variables, and to be honest with you, I've never tried this, but the logic really makes sense when you think about it. The necessity to constantly measure and chase the lands as we call it is greatly decreased. Okay, time for a quick breather. I'm hoping not to get too long-winded with this episode's mental machine, but I really wanted to start talking about match pressure and getting a case of the first stage jitters. This used to be a huge hindrance to my match performance, and it still pops up here and there. What I'm referring to is the feeling of nervousness or anxiety during the start of a match. Often I'll feel butterflies in my stomach start to creep up, my heart rate starts to increase, and my focus drifts from what it should be on to what it shouldn't be on. Most of this is completely self-induced. At no point did anybody come up to me before the match and say, Hey, JP, just FYI, everybody's watching you. We're expecting you to shoot a perfect score. Otherwise, we're all going to laugh at you and make fun of you for the rest of your life. Of course not. No, 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 no. 
so why do we put ourselves through this torment of the first stage jitters? Now I can admit, as recently as this season, I still have bouts of this issue come up once or twice, and I'm sure it'll happen again at some point. Camp <coughs> Perry. However, I've noticed now that it's much more manageable, it doesn't occur as often as it used to, and it isn't affecting my performance at the beginning of the match as much as it did in the past. I want to share a quick story about my past so that maybe we can connect on some common ground regarding what I'm talking about here. Let's rewind to circa 2000 to 2003 when I was shooting silhouette as a little Gumby. I was competing in a regional high power silhouette match which resulted in a tie score with one of the sport's best competitors at the time named Derek. I don't quite recall all of his accomplishments throughout the years but I believe there are a couple national championships in his name. We were at a beautiful range in Ridgeway, Pennsylvania that my grandfather and I would frequently shoot at for our regional and national level competitions. I'm desperately trying to remember the rules for a regional match, but if I recall correctly, a two or three day aggregate tie would force two competitors into a shoot-off. In silhouette, the shoot-off would be at the hardest target to hit. In this case, it was turkeys at 385 meters. Each shooter would be squatted next to each other, and after a gentleman's handshake prior to the stage, the line officers would call the shooters to the line. The line officer would call the shooters ready. The ready period was a 15 second period where the shooters could shoulder the rifle, dry fire it if they want to, but at no point could they live fire. After the ready period, the line officer would call fire. That gave both shooters a 30 second period in which to fire one shot at their steel turkey. It was a sudden death shoot off. If competitor A hit the target but B didn't, it was over. If they both hit or they both miss, then the sequence would continue until there was a clear winner. With the majority of the other shooters who weren't shooting standing behind you and your spotter watching the shoot-off, there was a lot of pressure. Adding to that pressure was the fact that there was an audible and unmistakable report of your bullet hitting the target after firing. Also, you and your shoot-off buddy were squatted next to each other, so you would typically see the other shooter steal animal either fall or not fall through your scope while you're focusing on your shot. Distracting? Oh, yes, especially for a young one who can't even drive a car yet. Now, I'm not going to tell tall tales of legends and mythical sagas here, but Derek was absolutely one of the best. Derek and I both shared a photo in the same write-up in Shooting Sports USA a few decades ago, and he was on the front cover. At the time, he was unstoppable. To find out that I was in a shoot-off with him was both exciting and terrifying. The stars had finally aligned, and my scores matched up with the best of the best. Well, guess who was calm, collected, and 100% on their game? I'll give you a hint. His name started with a D, and he was standing four feet to my right, because he was a lefty, he was looking at me face to face. He was what I consider today the poster child of self-control. I really looked up to him back in the day, and although I'm not sure if he's still shooting, I do look forward to the day our paths cross again. I don't really remember the outcome of that shoot-off, I truly don't, but I know it went at least four shots, which I definitely remember lasting a lifetime. It's like knowing you have to make a public speech in 10 minutes, and you're sitting in front of the crowd the whole time while they wait for you to stand up and start talking. It felt like a lifetime for that shoot-off. I remember each time the match director saying, ready, that I wanted so much for it to be over. I had shaking in my knees, my tiny little arms were holding a 10-pound 8-ounce rifle. Lordy, lordy, what a mess. But let's flash forward to a little more recent event. Now where this comes from is one of my enlightening moments when a local shooter with a lot of experience said that he had also overcome this problem in the past by realizing how it related to his fight or flight response. 
Now, it took a few days for me to process what he was telling me, but then I was able to put it to good use for future matches. Granted, this took a lot of time to work on, but I've been able to compartmentalize it into a little section for us today, so let's jump right into Imagination Land. I want you to imagine being given solo access to, oh, I don't know, how about the Dover Monster Mile Speedway for an entire day. Martin Truex Jr. gives you access to his number 19 Toyota Camry and tells you to drive as fast as you can and put the fastest lap time that you can muster up before the sun goes down. You'll be the only person in the entire speedway that day. So you strap on the helmet and other various safety devices and start working your way out of pit lane onto the track. At first, it takes some time getting things figured out, but eventually you start really getting the hang of it and posting some good lap times on the pole. After a few hours, you start getting into the groove and notice a few things that seem to help. For example, you're finding out which speed is the perfect speed for entry on a turns 1 and 3, how far off the apron to stay through the apex, and now you're picking out points on the safer barrier to aim for for turn exit so that you can launch into the straightaway. Now you start looking at your lap times on the pole and see that times that were 40 and 50 seconds start to diminish towards 30 seconds, then 25, then 24, and now 23.5. You focus on each step and start becoming one with the car and track, thinking three steps ahead of where you are, and you become fully immersed in the whole deal. You start dropping tenths down to 23 seconds and then 22.9 and even notice the sun going down on your track and your free track days starting to come to a saddening end. Now I want to throw a wrench in your dream day at the track. Would you do anything different the next day if there were a few onlookers in the stands? What about 1,000? What about 10,000 with press coverage and a team owner looking to sign you on his race team? Ideally, you'd do everything the same, but you'd feel the implied pressure of everyone watching you, which is totally built up in your own brain, and it degrades your performance into a crumble. How are you going to start running those incredible times again? Nothing has changed on the track. The car is the same as it was yesterday, barring small technical aspects like warm tires and built-up rubber on the track. So how do you get back to where you perform the best without this pressure? I bet you could start performing better without the pressure if you really, really focused on the process rather than the external factors. What's different with shooting? You practice so well on the scat and at the range in the evenings. You shoot your local match at the home range so well, but when it comes to a regional match or a team match or a leg match, the nerves start creeping in your head and your heart rate goes through the roof before your knees start knocking and buckling during offhand prep time. Again, I still occasionally struggle with this, as do most people. In fact, my first day at the Nationals at Camp Perry ever, I felt like I was going to throw up and I had a tremendous tremble in my knees during offhand that I just couldn't shake, if you'll pardon the pun. On my first day at the President's 100, I shot an 89 in offhand. Not bad, but I wasn't really ready for that kind of score, and it wasn't like me to shoot that kind of score. After overeating breakfast and consuming one more round of coffee than I'm supposed to, I teetered on the flight end of the seesaw that's fight or flight. Once I really started focusing all of my attention, and I mean all of my attention, on each stage of shooting and this process that I had practiced all year, I could start to block out this fake mental pressure that I was putting on myself. I only lost two more points for the rest of the day. Not too bad, but not quite good enough for the cut. So I've said the word process a few times. By this, I simply mean just focusing on the necessities of that stage of fire and the mental notes that go along with it. I have my small notes on the scorecard, like adjust your sling, focus on your shoulder placement, focus on your right hand grip, and start your NPA with no compromises. I basically try to give 100% of my attention to what I need to do for the string and nothing else. No attention to other shooters' goings-ons, their conversations, or whatever. It's just me, 
my equipment, the wind, and the line collar, and of course the X-ring. Keep in mind that it takes only one little errant thought about implied pressure to spike your heart rate and ignite those little butterflies again, but if you can stay locked in on the right stuff, it becomes easier to block everything else out. That's easier said than done here, and it certainly takes a considerable amount of time and discipline to put into useful practice. But if you can find something along those lines that works for you, I highly, highly, highly encourage you do so. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll get into some divisive talk in today's equipment engagement. All right, we're going to create a little drama today, and I've been waiting a long time for this one. I'm in the middle of a love and hate relationship with my new shooting jacket. It seems to be growing on me a little bit, or rather, I'm starting to grow around it. I'm actually not sure. Today's equipment engagement is about the Monard HP Ultimate Shooting Jacket. After shooting two seasons in secondhand jackets that were passed down in the family, I decided it was time to get a properly fitted jacket that would work for someone of my frame. Okay, imagine your local car wash's wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man advertisement. I'm the embodiment of that thing. My oversized jackets weren't built for me, and the Creedmoor coats had a little bit more fluff in the shoulder and the chest and arm area that I needed, so based on my good friend Jerry's recommendation, I gave a call to the U.S. distributor of Monard Equipment to see what all the fuss was about. I actually placed a few calls and emails to the distributor because I wanted to get this right the first time. These things are bloody expensive and extremely fitted, and it was a three-month wait time, so I wanted to get it right. I was assured that if something wasn't quite right, that he would be happy to help me make things right. It took quite a few nights to sleep on it, but I decided to pull the trigger and get one on order. The ordering process is quite complicated. There are almost 20 measurements that need to be recorded and sent to Monard. Now, as far as I was told, Monard headquarters in Europe will review the measurements to ensure they fit your body style. Then they'll look at photos that they requested of your shooting positions and approve the final build, which I was told is actually done in Pakistan. Uh, side note here, all their measurements are in centimeters, so make sure to look into your Euro trash drawer for a flexible measuring tape. I took my measurements per their instructions and instructional videos, and then I remeasured a few days later just to make sure nothing was amiss. Everything was lining up within a half a centimeter, so I submitted my order. Now, no exaggeration here, but three months to the day, I received a UPS notification of my coat shipping from the U.S. distributor. I had ordered it in late July, so it was late October when it arrived, which was just after the local shooting season had ended. I was ecstatic. I planned all the colors for each panel, thought about how nice it would be to have a fitted jacket, and mentally excited about sitting in front of the scat and checking out how my new positions would feel with a proper jacket. My inexperience with this type of jacket really led me in the wrong direction here. I was wronger than wrong goes wrong. Uh-uh. Now, before we get dirty here, I want to preface my next few comments with the fact that I've currently grown to appreciate certain parts of this coat, and it's certainly better than what I was using previously, but it did take a lot of break-in time and mental and physical frustrations getting to this point. So after unboxing this coat, I really had an eye-opening experience. Not only was this leather and Cordura coat stiff, but the inside of the sleeves were frighteningly narrow and aggressively rough textured. I'm beyond thankful that my girlfriend was there to watch me don this prized piece for the first time. Wearing only a t-shirt, I was just too excited to wait and I wanted to throw it on for size. I started my hand on the left sleeve, and when it came to the right sleeve, I could not find sleeve entry. No joke. It was so narrow and rigid that I had to have her help me put it on. 
I made it halfway down each sleeve and realized that I needed to totally come out of this jacket and go about it a different way. My arms weren't bending in the right directions and the sleeves were not budging. I tried a different approach and with her help I was able to uncomfortably squeeze into this thing. It felt like I was being hugged by a plastic Coca-Cola bear from behind. To add to it, I looked at my knuckles and two of them on my left hand were bleeding. I actually had rug burn on my knuckles trying to guide my hand down the sleeves. They were that disagreeable with bare skin. Once I was in the jacket, she went back to work in the office and I was free to play around and see how this thing worked with straps and zippers. It was a struggle moving my arms to freely get strapped in. By now you know I'm not a muscular dude, but to be bested by this coat and not be able to reach the straps was really pissing me off by this point. It was doable, but with a lot of effort. I was beginning to be concerned that it was going to raise my heart rate during offhand prep time. Not great. Once I got the straps buckled, I went to see how offhand and prone felt. To my dismay, I felt like I was fighting the coat in offhand. However, it was extremely solid during prone. Offhand felt like somebody was pushing the barrel away from the target because the leather was so tight in the arms. I didn't like this, but I was optimistic that it would ease up in the future, which it did. What I did not like about it was where the ammo pouch pocket was located. For those of us who used the 22 round leather ammo pouch attached to our jackets, this was an absolute no-go item for me. It was far towards the right hip making it a struggle to reach the rounds during a string. It could be done, but with considerable effort. In a world of movement efficiency and low heart rates, this was just not gonna work. Now here's the part that I was pretty glad my girlfriend was around. Okay, I'm always happy she's around, blah, 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 blah. But I probably would have been committed to a nut house had she not been there. After I tried it on, I couldn't get out of it. Imagine, if you will, me trying on this jacket that's extremely tight, extremely rigid, and that's somehow bonded to my arms permanently and not being able to get out of it. It felt like a straight jacket. She was laughing so hard, it must have looked like an octopus flailing around in the kitchen trying to get this damn thing off. To this day, I still have to pull the jacket off in a really weird way. I'm honestly concerned that I'm going to wear out my rotator cuffs before I hit 40. So it's loosened up a bit so I don't have those panic moments anymore, but it's still pretty fun to watch. Another issue that I really disliked was the location of the left elbow pad and bicep patch with top grip during prone. The elbow pad is installed for those shooters who shoot a chicken wing position as I've heard it called. In the chicken wing position, the elbow is basically flared way out to the left for the Eurites, resembling a chicken wing away from the bore. For those of us shooters who realize that this doesn't really usually set up for good on-target performance, this was not ideal. I tend to favor the elbow toward the bore technique, planting the flat part of the outside of the elbow if you follow. If you don't follow, reach your hand straight out in front of you, rotate your palm facing upwards, and feel the underside of your elbow. That's the location that my elbow rests on the mat. I had to work into this position over time and also make sure not to over-rotate my arm because, no kidding, there are times where my shoulder and my arm would go numb after the match. The problem is the outside edge of the elbow pad lays right where I put my elbow down. It creates a pesky ridge where the pad stops, and sometimes I just sit there and teeter-totter on it. Surely this was not going to work and I'd have to figure something else out. The bicep grip location is another poor design flaw. The purpose of it is to help keep your sling in place. I usually don't have a problem with this, but there are people that do, so if you do, the idea is that it's supposed to keep your sling in position and not let it slide down during a string. 
Unfortunately, it's located at the lower apex of your bicep if you're flexing your muscles. Why would you place it down there? In fact, why would you limit it to such a small patch in the first place? It's approximately three inches by three inches. So first off, make it bigger. Then place it in a more useful place, like high on the arm near armpit shoulder junction. I can tell that with the bottom of my sling resting at the top of this patch during strings, it's going to start tearing off soon. So I did what any sane person spending a stupid amount of money would do. I just called the US representative of Monarch to see if maybe he could weigh in on some of my problems. Here's where I'm not going to make any friends. I had a fairly poor experience with the individual. He was very passive, unwilling to help, and he actually blamed my shooting style for most of the issues. Regarding the odd location of the pocket on the right hip for the ammo pouch, he said he wouldn't fix it because it wasn't designed to hold an ammo pouch. He said it was used for small tools and such, whatever that means. It must be a coincidence, of course, that the Creedmoor ammo pouch fits perfectly into that slot. So that fix was just flat out refused. When queried about the elbow pad and sling grip patch, I was blamed for having an unconventional position and that I needed to change my position because I was doing it wrong. That part's not an exaggeration. He said that I was supposed to shoot chicken wing and drop the sling to the lower part of the bicep closer to the elbow. Not only would he not fix it, he said he was completely unable to do it anyway because he wasn't able to remove the sleeves from the jacket to work on them. He said he would have to go find a local shop that could work on leather, and said that I should just do the same thing if I really wanted something done. At this point, I felt extremely frustrated and sort of bait and switched. This is not the customer service that I was hoping for on a $1,000 shooting jacket. Yep, I said it, $1,000. I've heard of Monard, the head company in Europe, extending extremely good customer service and support in the past. So something must be going on with our distributor, because besides myself, I've seen firsthand other customers receiving poor service as well, including ordering a new shooting glove and receiving one that's been used, worn in, and soiled. Blech. So what do I do next time I need a jacket? Honestly, I'm not really sure. Like I said, the jacket's growing on me or me around it, whatever. The scores haven't suffered and I've dealt with some of the flaws of the jacket. I just wish that it was better suited for high power shooters. I guess I set my expectations just a little too high for the ultimate HP jacket. I'm betting I'll still choose the same company in the future. The fixes that I'd like to see on the next coat are probably doable and I can make it work. I mean, come on, if people are still buying Boeing airplanes after, you know, the thing. So on the good side of it, there are some nice features and I'll give credit where it's due. The adjustable shoulder straps are a nice feature to pull up any slack in the shoulder pad. With my bony shoulders, it's great for sitting and prone. I also like the zippers around the hip bones, allowing the jacket to splay out during sitting and not bunch up under the armpit and shoulder area. The rigidity of it has worn down a touch and the parts that needed to mold to my body have started to form, and I'm really thankful for that. I also appreciate the ability to design your own color scheme for the jacket. There are a ton of colored panels on it to choose from, and you can add your initials on the bottom right of the back panel. The U.S. distributor will also add a U.S. flag patch to the jacket free of charge. My last two coats weren't able to tighten in the shoulder strap, so I'm happy this one's able to do that. I feel much more snug when I need it. While I typically leave a match with pinch marks and honestly a few bruises on my armpits and shoulders, I feel much more in tune with the rifle and not letting it slide around like it used to. I'm going to keep this jacket as long as I can. I'm going to get my absolute money's worth out of it.
I'm not sure when it'll be time to retire it, but I seriously hope it's a long ways away. I'm going to file this one in the nice-to-have category. Of course, having a shooting coat is a must, but, you know, there are others like it, but this one is just the one I'm stuck with. Alright friends, time for me to get back to work. Thanks for listening, and as this community grows, I hope to hear from you. Feel free to weigh in on anything, add some advice, or just introduce yourself and make a new friend for a future range visit. I can be reached at jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for High Power Hangout. Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.